Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I've been a big fan of your work for a minute and um, have wanted to connect, so I'm glad we could make it happen. Oh, I'm so glad to. Um, can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Sure. Um, so I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and you know I, I think it's always important to talk about my family's roots, which are in rural Mississippi, Tennessee, and Arkansas. And um, the fact that we had farms that we owned, and I got a chance to, um, you know, visit one of the farms. Unfortunately, um, as many African Americans experienced throughout the 20th century, um, two of the farms that we had actually um, were taken away from us. Um, and you know, it's important for me to really put the work that I'm doing and the kind of practices that I promote in context. And I always say that, you know, really, I'm simply, you know, imparting the lessons that I learned by my elders um, and ancestors, um, because, you know, many of the practices that, you know, I would argue are, are rooted in survival, um, some in pleasure, um, you know, things such as growing food at home, uh, canning and pickling and preserving, making meals from scratch, you know, these were the type of practices that my grandparents, um, you know, they were just kind of central to the way that they lived. And, you know, I say that because so often when we talk about these things, you know, they are um, kind of attributed to, or at least the stories that we hear often about, um, you know, at least as of late, um, you know, young um, kind of urban gentrifiers who are, you know, taking on these practices as a way to kind of push back against our industrialized food system. And for me, it's important to recognize that, you know, working class, working poor, rural and urban uh, Black folks, um, particularly in the South, have embraced these practices, um, you know, I don't know, for a while. And And for me, it's about understanding that this was just the way that they lived. They didn't feel any need to name it or kind of classify it. It's just like growing food was cheaper. Growing food made sense. Growing food was, you know, they had the agrarian knowledge and skills that they wanted to apply in an urban context. And, um, you know, our food was as local as our backyard garden. We mostly ate what was in season and we would often, you know, literally go out and harvest food right before we made it. And so that's really the foundation of, of all the work that I'm doing. And I, I, I stand on the shoulders of those ancestors and elders who um, taught me these things when I was um, a child. Right. And how did you end up eating a vegan diet or, or getting connected to the, the world of veganism? Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> once again, I think it's important to um, acknowledge that my early kind of contact with these ideas came from Black folks. You know, mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about like the vegetarian, vegan diet, plant-based plant eating, or, or however you want to talk about it, you know, once again, so often in the popular imagination, you know, people immediately go to like, uh, you know, the practices of these kind of uh, upper middle class white suburbanites or the kind of... Uh, urban gentrified white hipsters and you know the first time that I even learned about you know vegetarian and veganism it was from some black family members who were seven-day Adventists 
and obviously, you know, theologically driven, their, their um, you know, uh, practices around eating in this way. But, you know, that was the first contact that I came into. And then, you know, I, I would say the, the kind of like pivotal moment as a young person that <laughs> launched me into food activism, and I could talk about what that food activism looked like in a second, uh-huh. was when I heard the song Beef. Uh, by the rapper KRS-One in Boogie Down Productions, um, in which he just so brilliantly talks about the impact of factory farming, um, not only on animals, but human health and the environment. And, um, you know, that was a major shift in, in my habits and attitudes and politics around food. And, you know, one of the things that is, is so funny, I, I, it's funny now, but back then, I'm sure my parents, my parents were really disgusted with me because whatever stereotypes one has of kind of like the self-righteous, dogmatic, finger-wagging um, vegans, you know, that was how it was showing up. And, and there were a lot of like fights and, you know, me haranguing them and, you know, trying to get them to shift their diet, even though I just changed like the week before. And that was a great lesson. Um, you know, I really carry that period with me because it just showed me that the least effective way to, uh, <laughs> you know, help people think about changing their habits and attitudes and politics regarding food is yelling at them and screaming at them and, and, and making them feel like wrong for the way that they're, um, you know, just living their lives. And so as someone who's worked for, you know, work with young people for better part of two decades and specifically starting this work around food justice activism, uh, working with young people, you know, I realized that uh, there are more effective ways to help young people think more deeply about their relationship with food and animals and the natural environment. And for me, that was, you know, actually cooking. When you hear about, um, you know, the, these type of dietary practices and, and, you know, political positions, I think a lot of people default towards people like Peter Singer and John right. Robbins and Francis Moore LePay. And, you know, they certainly are... Um, important thinkers and activists and have, you know, inspired a lot of my work and, you know, two of them being personal mentors. But, you know, I just always have to pivot back to my early um, teachers were all Black folks. I mean, we could talk about just like me hearing this song by KRS-One and Boogie Down Productions and the way in which that just totally transformed my relationship with food. And then um, starting to spending a lot of time at the, the health food store in downtown Memphis. And I connected with this community of Black folks who had been like vegans for decades. And these are like, it, it was interesting because it was such a diverse group of folks. I mean, the people I felt um, drawn to the most initially were uh, Rastafarians. And there were a lot mm-hmm. of, uh, there were a number of Rastas in Memphis who would go to the, um, who would shop there and who would hold court in the little uh, prepared eating section. And so I, I, I would talk to them and, and just learn more about, you know, the Ital diet, but, you know, it's pretty much um, parallel to what we think of as kind of like a ethical vegan diet. Um, but I also met like, you know, older black folks who, for whatever reason, had shifted from a standard American diet to, um, you know, plant-based diets and learning about their journeys and, and not just around like consumption, but also, you know, these were folks who had agrarian roots and, you know, I, that's where I started to get interested in gardening because they would talk to me about just the importance of growing food and, and, uh, contributing to local food systems. 
Um, and so, you know, I, I, I just, I think it's, it's vitally important for me to really name and claim uh, these Black elders and thinkers and writers and activists and, and, and kind of uplifting this uh, thread of Black-led food activism throughout the 20th century, uh, whether we're talking about the, you know, theologically kind of based health ministry of like the Seven Day Adventists, or we could look at like the Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad's um, health ministry. I mean, he wrote two books, How to Eat to Live, and um, they were, you know, very focused on how um, food can both heal and, and hurt uh, Black communities. We could talk about, you know, Dick Gregory, who was a major inspiration and in, in reading his book, Cooking with Mother Nature, um, in high school and, you know, listening to his lectures. And, um, you know, th- these were the people that um, I, I felt that, that I would say deeply inspired me to feel like I could contribute to this conversation uh, through my um, activism and eventually, you know, writing. Right. And how do you define food activism and food justice? And and can you give a, you know, a picture of how your work has uh, manifested in those in those areas? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think for me, like, I, I, I'll focus on food justice activism. Sure. Um, because I think food justice activism, um, it, it, it moves beyond advocacy and direct service. And I think it calls on like organized responses by the, the people who are living in these historically impacted communities, the people who are most impacted by food injustice. Right. And as you know, there's often been, well, I don't know if you, I'm sure you, yes, you do know about this, but, you know, having been in this movement for like two decades, it would frustrate me to, to I mean, like I would go to the you know, national gatherings around improving our food system, you know, helping to create more healthy, just and sustainable food systems or whatever language they use. And so often, or I would say most of the time, at least, um, you know, back in the early 2000s, when I first started doing this work, the people who are most impacted by these issues, whether it's, uh, you know, migrant farm laborers or, um, you know, folks who are living in these historically marginalized communities that are often described as food deserts, although I have problems with their term, we can talk about that, um, um, or, you know, young people who are the kind of victims of our industrialized food system and, and being like, you know, just so aggressively um, marketed to, you know, eating the worst foods and drinking the worst beverages. And so I just felt like, look, this, we need to think differently about that. And so I think for me, food justice activism is about the people who are being impacted, um, leading and driving the change. And that means that there needs to be a shift in power and resources towards those communities because folks know um, when things are awry and, and people have creative solutions and, and they're implementing those solutions on the ground in communities. But uh, what's needed is more um, resources to actually um, kind of scale those resources, scale those projects um, and, you know, pay people for their labor and it's really empower people to continue to, um, you know, improve the communities in the ways that they best think that those communities should be um, improved. Right, right. And you mentioned the term food desert and it being problematic. I know it's been kind of discredited in, in food studies and it's no one is supposed to use it anymore. But um, from your perspective, what is what is the 
<laughs> what is the, uh, you know, because it's become such a common term, it's, it's so commonly trot out. Um, and we think we know what people mean by that. But yeah, why, why don't, yeah. what, what are the problems with the term food desert? Well, I think um, my mentor, Karen Washington, the farmer in New York um, City slash state, um, you know, is, is so articulate in describing like the issues with that term and how if we're talking about power, if we're talking about historical structures that have prevented people from having access to healthy, affordable and fresh um, food, you know, I think the term that's in parlance among a lot of the uh, far left activists now is a food apartheid and recognizing right. that, you know, it, it's not, you know, I think with food desert, I've always felt like it's a weird term because it's it's almost like a naturalized, you know, if you think about deserts, um, you know, it's kind of like this natural environment. And first of all, I mean, like deserts are like these thriving ecosystems, but that's a whole other thing. But um, I think that, you know, the, the, the problem is, is that that term kind of erases the historical process in which many communities, um, which were once thriving local food systems, then became these quote unquote food deserts. You know, when I talk about my um, my grandparents' neighborhood, I mean, these are like working class black folks living in South Memphis, Tennessee, and their neighborhood, their community was a thriving local food system that was driven by like just the people who lived there. I mean, we could talk about my grandfather's urban farm in his backyard. We could talk about many of the neighbors who also had gardens and farms or many orchards um, or just growing tomatoes in their front um, porch and pots. And so, um, you know, it saddens me when I go back to that same community now and it's like a shell of itself. Like you don't see... I'm like, what happened to all the the, the uh, stone fruit trees? You know, it just would be like every house, it seemed, had like some uh, peach trees, uh, nectarines, pear trees. And then statistically, we know that that community has some of the highest rates of preventable diet-related illnesses. And so when I think about like uh, deindustrialization, I think about the defunding of programs of public schools in these communities. Like it's very clear that you know the the process that uh, prevented them from continuing to be these thriving um, or having these thriving local food systems. And so um, you know I think food apartheid just kind of squarely helps people like get straight to the point and understand like the the, the ways in which power and privilege. Uh, play into how people can access um, healthy, affordable food. Absolutely. Um, well, right now during the pandemic, there's so much discussion about how the cruelty of specifically the factory farming industry will move people toward plant-based eating. But I mean, from my perspective, I'm sure from yours, you know, the, none of this was a secret. The reality of the conditions for, for the workers, the reality of the treatment of animals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but from your perspective, do you do you think that this moment might actually inspire real change around people's consumption habits, around their mindfulness around food issues? Um, I don't know. I de- <laughs> I, I think it depends on <laughs> where you are. I mean, I think about right. the, the stories of um, that my parents are sharing about um, the region that they live in, which is the, the southeast. Uh, they live in Alabama and just how quickly folks are reverting back to whatever they imagine as the normal being. And, you know, it's just like the same type of patterns of, you know, overconsuming and just like, you know, 
whatever. My mom was saying that like throughout this, when when she ventures out, you know, the lines at the drive-through and fast food restaurants are like down the street. I guess I'm. I hope that a lot of people are thinking more deeply about these issues. I know um, in somewhere like the Bay Area, yeah, of course people are. I mean, because yeah. it's so pervasive and you have many institutions that are helping, um, you know, bring the type of food that might've been going to restaurants to consumers and people are, you know, like all these CSAs have been popping up and, you know, the farmer's markets have been making more um, accommodations to, you know, allow people to shop because they're just, you know, frustrated with waiting two hours in a long line to go to the conventional supermarket or whatever. But I think I'm more interested in if this moment will inspire people to think more deeply about the, and maybe this is a stretch if we can't even think about eating differently, but okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm more interested in people thinking about the ecological context for this right. and other pandemics and really understanding that, you know, if we don't get to the, the root causes of while we're in this moment, we're just going to continue to see this happening over and over again. And it's just going to be, you know, the, the problem is going to be like much worse as we move forward and climate chaos continues to um, have its effect. Um, you know, I, I think people need to understand that this current ecological crisis, well, this pandemic is connected to an ecological crisis that um, is rooted in, in an economic crisis, which is capitalism, right? And so, you know, if we, if we don't we don't get a grip on, um, so I mean, like, yeah, like all that, and we just need. I think there needs to be more awareness about how, as humans. Um, how our relationship with animals, whether they're wild or whether they're domestic, they're at the core of the majority of these epidemics. And our current industrialized food system, you know, will continue to put us in positions where we're going to be dealing with these type of like global pandemics and wildfires and climate chaos and everything that um, we've been seeing over the past several years. And so, um, you know, I, I want to see people in communities, you know, self-organizing to meet our needs yeah. right now. Um, I want to see us thinking about ways that we could remake our economy towards a just and livable future. And if we get to the root of those things, then I think it'll like these like kind of crises, pandemics and, and the like um, will be much easier to, um, you know, control or capture. They won't get as, as you know, as bad as it's gotten over the past yeah. couple months. Right, right, right. No, and I, I think the the media in the beginning was was talking a little bit about the ecological roots of the pandemic crisis, and now it's moved into this full on back to the individual and the consumption choices, and rather than focusing on more macro issues that are the reason that we are in this problem anyway. Um, but that also brings me exactly. to another question I had for you, which is, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about how kind of the last most recent wave of this push to farm to table and seasonal eating and locality didn't really work. And so um, in terms of really changing broadly, um, at least American people in the United States relationship to the food system. Um, so do you have any concrete, you know, political 
visions for how the food system and even how food media can can become more justice oriented in, in how it how it grapples with various issues. Yeah. Um, well, I'll say I when this all jumped off, I was really hopeful that a historical moment <laughs> such as this right. would push more people to be um, a little more justice oriented when it comes to thinking about food. Um, and, you know, as I said, I think we're already seeing the signs that a lot of people, once things get back to whatever they imagine is normal, they're just going to revert to many of the same consumer habits that they had pre-shelter in place. And, um, you know, I think any movements promoting farm to table and seasonal eating, I mean, they're just empty and selfish, frankly, if they don't focus on the people growing and harvesting and transporting and cooking our food. Um, especially when we know that um, the people globally, the people most impacted by hunger and food security are the people who are producing the food that we eat. I think I read that it was like up to 80% of the world's chronically hunger, uh, the three, three, two, one, the up to 80% of the world's chronically hungry are farmers. Um, so, you know, I've been doing this work for like two decades. Um, I've seen, you know, most of the people and organizations who aggressively kind of promote this shallow farm to table movement without a justice lens. I think a lot of them are the same folks who emphasize consumer action as the best way to improve our food system, right? You just go to the farmer's market or if you buy uh, organic and fair trade, like that's what's going to... Um, change our food system, if everybody just does that. And I think that, you know, going back to your question around, like, how do I find, define food justice or the food justice movement? I think that this movement understands that, like, the social and economic, like, social and economic justice are central to this project. And, you know, I really recognize that when you talk about lack of access to healthy, fresh, affordable food or whatever, that's simply one, and I've been saying this for the longest time, that that's one indicator of material deprivation in these communities. Most often, the most food insecure communities and the most food unjust, the communities dealing with food apartheid are the ones who are also dealing with environmental racism, crumbling infrastructure, underfunded segregated public schools, lack of green space to even like be physically active so you can you know, improve your overall health. And so if we don't get to the root of all these issues, then it's kind of like spinning our wheels. And I think you know, I think people just like the media, everyday eaters, consumers, whatever. I think we like it's politicians. I think people need to care about the most vulnerable people in our society. Um, and, you know, we know that so many of the elected officials who are making policies, um, they're beholden to the wealthy donors or corporations that are lining their pockets. When I think, like, I, I can't say I have concrete steps for improving our food system, because I think those type of steps need to be taken in the community. I think they need to be localized. Mm-hmm. I think they need to be about just coming together and, and determining what's the best pathway forward for uh, creating parallel systems outside of capitalism, for um, showing love and care for communities. And to be honest with you, I feel like some of the organizations who are, you know, doing this in the most effective ways, in my opinion, they aren't even like food justice focused organizations. 
you know, I think about two of the uh, most prominent or two of the most inspiring examples for me are the movement for black lives and um, movement generation, which is a, a Bay area based um, collective that is doing some amazing work around really getting to the core of um you know, the, the root of this ecological crisis and, and how it's impacting, you know, all these natural systems and economies and everything. Um, but I think what they do, you know, if you look at like their platforms and position papers, like they're certainly addressing food apartheid and see that as a mm-hmm. primary, um, you know, issue that we could focus on when kind of like improving our communities. But they're also talking about ending climate chaos, really helping us to reimagine how we can kind of, uh, form new relationships to nature and energy. They're talking about reparations. You know what I mean? Like, like literally, um, <laughs> creative ways of repairing our communities, but also like ensuring that Black Americans are compensated when we recognize that modern capitalism was fueled by the institution of slavery and 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 you know all the after effects from the um, you know Jim Crow, the prison industrial complex, like these kind of like reinvention of these same systems that continue to, um, you know, oppress and marginalize um, Black folks. So I, I look to them. Um, those are the groups that I study, that I, um, I've been, Movement Generation has been doing this brilliant, um, they, they just started this whole uh, four-week series um, where they're doing these uh, Zoom sessions to really help people understand the roots of uh, this pandemic and, you know, the connections between, like, you know, ecological crisis and capitalism. Um, I also think that we should be looking towards the Global South and some of the amazing right. organizing I've um, learned about from, you know, mentors like Raj Patel and others who are seeing, um, you know, <laughs> like peasant farming or farmer organizing and, with really understanding um, how communities who control their own labor and are able to self-organize to meet their community needs um, while pushing for structural change is the the kind of models that we need to be adapting um, as we think about kind of like reimagining what this world looks like um, post whatever this moment is. Right. Oh, and uh, also, um, I mean, it's like, you know, some of the, I mean, as of late, some of the people who've inspired me, I've been revisiting Leah Penniman's book, uh, Farming While Black, um, you know, certainly excited about what she's brought to the conversation um, in terms of, you know, economic empowerment and really ensuring that, um, you know, some some of the most vulnerable um, people in our communities, um, namely um, women of color, can um, be economically uh, have these economically sustainable businesses and feed their families. Um, I love the way that Tunde Wei has been pushing us to think about, you know, these larger issues like using food as a way to talk about things such as the racial wealth gap or, um, you know, whatever issues he's focused on at the time. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry for being a little verbose. No, perfect. No. Um, no, Tunde has been, you know, the man of the hour lately, which has been amazing to watch because he's really pushing yeah. people in food media, especially to, to talk in ways that they have been so incapable of talking before. Um, and I think yeah. that he put out fermented locust 
beans. I forget the actual name of the. It's it's escaping me right now. But with oh yeah, with his the, new right with the the partnership with Burlap and Barrel. I don't know if you're familiar with their spices, mm. but they're they're wonderful. But and it sold out basically immediately. I think that I I saw the announcement. I went to buy them, and they were gone. And I was like, wow. So this is, this is good. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. 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 No, I'm <laughs> I'm excited about that. Um, but your most recent book is Vegetable Kingdom. And for me, I mean, I'm not a big person to cook recipes specifically, especially right now, because yeah. I don't know, you know, I, I'm just basing on things on what I have and what's around. But I've been opening your book yeah. so much just to find some inspiration for flavors for anything, like for ingredients. And so I, what are you going to in terms of cooking for inspiration lately, if anything? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm really happy to hear that you've been finding some inspiration in the book. Um, I certainly don't expect that everyone will be cooking for it. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, my approach has been kind of creating this multi-layered book with beautiful images, with, um, you know, obviously the recipes, the music, and then slipping in some socio-political head notes. Um, right. And, and I just see it at the end of the day, I really see writing a um, book was, you know, my act of, of love and care for our community. So whether people are just like flipping through inspired by the images or um, listening to the playlist on Spotify or, um, you know, actually making the meals, I'm just glad people are engaging with it because I, I have a similar way that I engage with um, my cookbooks. Um, I, in terms of what I've been actually cooking from, um, I would say I was really going when it was a little cooler. Um, I don't know. It might be a little too hot for this. I need to revisit it. But I was cooking a lot from um, Season by Nick Sharma. Um, yes. Lately, I've been going back to one of my favorites. This is like, you know, one of kind of like my little cooking Bible, um, Eat by Nigel Slater, in terms of just mm -hmm. like simple, you know, ingredient driven, um, quick, mostly quick meals. Um, Jubilee by Tony Tippett Martin is amazing. It's been great just kind of exploring that, revisiting a lot of these histories and um, kind of, you know, um, modifying the recipe to suit my family's needs. Uh, the We Are La Cocina book is super dope and amazing. Um, and then not so much now, but I would say hardcore for like the first month of the shelter in place, I was really going hard with uh, Cool Beans by Joe Yonan oh. and um, yeah. Steve Sandow with Heirloom Bean Guide. I don't know if you've seen that one. It's a beauty. Mm -hmm. You got to get that. <laughs> um, so yeah, those, those have been like some of my, I, like the books that I, I guess, remove from my um workspace and bring in the house so that they're like handy though i would say those are like some of the top ones nice nice and so for you is is cooking a political act most certainly um i would say my understanding that cooking um being a political act is what um really moved me to engage in food justice activism. So before I got into the food world, I was actually a doctoral student at NYU. And my advisor um, was a brilliant historian, Robin D.G. Kelly. And his second um, scholarly monograph, I don't know if you wrote any books between his first one, but um, his second monograph is called um, 
what is it? Why am I blanking on it? Race Rebels. <laughs> Race Rebels. And the book, so basically what he does is he's kind of looking at methods of resistance adopted by Black working class folks in the 20th century um, to resist capitalism and white supremacy. So he talks about things like slowdowns, you know, quitting on the spot, theft, leaving work early, but like really these subversive acts um, that um, were kind of like the unorganized ways that many people would um, resist these systems of oppression. You know, obviously there's more organized like labor unions and things like that. And so it, it, it like that book helped me to develop this kind of bifocal approach where I'm thinking about larger systems and structures, but also acknowledging and uplifting uh, these kind of everyday acts of resistance. So, you know, when I think about, um, you know, you think about something like cooking or gardening or, um, you know, building community around the table with friends and family. I think a lot of people might see these as um, apolitical. And, you know, I would argue that in our West Life Food Society, that's... They're wild enough. <laughs> um, sorry. Um, you know, in our industrialized food system that's controlled by a handful of multinational corporations that are invested in you shopping at these corporate-owned supermarkets or eating at fast restaurants or stuffing your face really quickly so you can get back to work, I would argue that, like, Making meals from scratch, growing your own food, um, gathering around the table are, are highly political. And dare I say radical. And I think that, you know, in and of themselves, they're not enough to um, continue to transform our food system. But I think they need to, um, you know, be like uplifted alongside more organized forms of, um, you know, kind of radical resistance to um, these oppressive systems. Well, thank you so much, Bryant, for taking the time out to chat today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.